Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brand. In this episode, it's time to start the machine and look reality straight in the eye with SST-225, the Blast Take the Manic Ride LP. Very cool to get into this one. This is actually the first Blast record I ever bought. Hmm. And I don't know if I've mentioned that on prior episodes, but this is definitely one that I bought just because it had SST on it. I had no idea what it is. So this is... Uh, this is a really cool one to get into for me. And to make it even better, Brent, we've got a special guest. You bet. We've got Mike Nider on the show. So cool to have Mike on. And I mean, it's a great interview. Just a great guy who really, you know, tells us how this all came together. So just yeah. awesome. Just awesome. Before we get into this record, Brent, I want to hit you with a spiel, if I could, please. Okay. All right. So my spiel this week is called Off Takes the Manic Ride. And totally goes off. <laughs> Whoa, okay. Like, here's my thing, though, man. Like, I've got so many good new records that I'm just dying to spiel about. But, like, I feel like the unwritten Mojack rule is that we, we don't talk about new music until our year-end roundup. No, man. I have to talk about this one. Okay? <laughs> okay, spiel this for the dudes. <laughs> off takes the manic ride and totally goes off. All right. Okay? That's what this one is. So... The new Off record arrived in my mailbox this week. And we all know Off. That's, of course, Keith from Black Flag and the Circle Jerks. And then Dimitri. Those are the, the mainstays. Dimitri from Burning Brides. And then, of course, for the first few records, Stephen McDonald from Red Cross and Mario Ribblecabra from Hot Snakes, Earthless, Clickatat, Ikatawi, Rocket from the Crypt. Just tons and tons of other bands. Hey, too. Ryan, Mary. Ryan. And there's a tie-in, too, because he used to be a pro skater. So, Dude, th my whole spiel is a tie-in. Hang in there, okay? <laughs> my whole spiel. So I love that lineup of Off. And that li that lineup rocks. Like, and it, it rocks in the truest sense of that word. But there's a new lineup, as probably everyone who's listening to this podcast knows, because Autry Fulbright and Justin Brown have joined off as the new rhythm section. And I was listening to this record this week. I got it. And I was listening to it at the same time as I'm listening, like back and forth with Take the Manic Ride. Mm -hmm. So so check this out. Okay. Here's where I'm coming from. Now, Autry and Justin are both from LA and Oakland, respectively. Now, off has a song named Blast, and the Circle Jerks are currently playing with Joey Castillo on drums, who used to play in Blast, and maybe still plays in Blast. I think so, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I'm listening to this new Off record this week, and it's kind of Blast-esque for me. Mm -hmm. is, is it a Blast-esque record for you? Very. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, I'm going, there's so many parts. This new record is so intense. It's so lurching and fluid. Mm -hmm. I had to do some digging. So, I did a bit of a deep dive into Autry and Justin, the new rhythm section, okay? All right. Now, Justin plays with uh, Thundercat and a pretty heavy jazz player, and he just tears it up on this record on the skins. Just insane and awesome. But here's where I found the best trail of breadcrumbs, and it relates to Autry. So I did some digging on Autry, and I know Autry, and I'll, I'll tell you why I know Autry already. Um, I, of course, know him from Trail of Dead. But I listened to a recent episode of Turned Out a Punk, hmm. Damien's show, right? And Autry was on there. And Autry went on this massive spiel about SST records. 
and the Minutemen in particular. Minutemen really struck a chord with Autry for sure. But he tells a story about how he moved from L.A. to Georgia and he would his parents would take him to this pawn shop and someone had some bad luck and and brought in like all of their SST records and CDs to this pawn shop. And Autry would just buy anything that had SST on it, right? Him and Damien were kind of spieling about how, you know, you would just buy stuff because of the label it's on. And it kind of reminded me of our first few episodes of this podcast, you know, before we hit puberty, right. like way, way back. Yeah. And and that's that's part of the reason we started this show, right? And, and it was really cool to listen to Autry talk about how he would just buy something because it had an SST on it. And it, on one hand, it could be like an amazing discovery or it could be like, you know, he, he held out killer tweaker bees as like, you know, not so amazing. Right? <laughs> so anyways, I'm going, he didn't say blast, but the way he described his relationship with SST and how he came into all these dozens and dozens of SST releases and bought them just because they had SST on them. It's hard to imagine he didn't pick up a blast record, mm -hmm. but I kept on doing more digging. Okay. And then, um, I found this, uh, this bio for this band that Autry is also in called vanishing life. Do you know vanishing life? Uh, I think I've heard them before or heard of them, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Spiel so for I, me. Yeah. So vanishing life rule. Now, I didn't get into them, though, because of Autry. I got into them because Walter from Gorilla Biscuits, Rival Schools, and Quicksand is in Vanishing Life. I follow anything Walter, right? And so I got this record by them years ago. It's cool. It got me listening to that again this week, which was awesome. Anyways, it's Walter from Gorilla Biscuits, Rival Schools, Quicksand, Jamie from Bad Religion, uh, the latest drummer for Bad Religion, Zach from Rise Against. Here's what the bio says on Vanishing Life, okay? Check this out. American rock band formed in the muddy fields of Belgium during the Gros Rock Hardcore Punk Festival in 2014. Vanishing Life rapidly progressed from conversation to fully formed band, with Autry Fulbright as the ideas man. Their sound is big, loud, intricate, and building on the tenets of guitar-driven rock. The immediacy of Vanishing Life's debut LP, Surveillance, is gripping. They steadily tap The Fall, Black Flag, Savages, Angel Olsen, The Damned, Grinderman, Blast, Whoa. and Early Wire. With a modernity and focus, never nostalgia. So... Here's where I'm at for this week after listening to Off and Blast back and forth this week. Here's my question, maybe. Did Blast, which was influenced by Black Flag, influence Off? I don't know. But I do think the people who like this new Off record, which I totally do, will love this Blast record that we're covering this week. Yeah. I actually had the same thought. We were texting about the Off record, and I was you hadn't gotten it just quite yet, and... I got it maybe a two a few days before you, and I was I had to redeem myself after telling you the new uh, Mars Volta sock <laughs> <laughs> to tell you how just unbelievably good that new off record is. Yeah, it's different. It's a progression. It's still totally off, and it's still totally rocks, but it's more proggy. And Keith's vocals are amazing. His yeah. lyrics are. Just he totally ups the paranoia factor on the uh, 
on the vocals. I just love it. Well, I remember like him talking like this, I think is long, you know, somewhat delayed or something, you know what I mean? Like probably because of the circle jerks reunion or whatever. But I remember him talking back when he still had his podcast, uh, which I'm, I can't remember the name of it, but it didn't last very, very long. Uh, but it was a good podcast. And I remember him telling me cause the podcast was all about conspiracy theories and, and, and yeah. things like that. And him yeah. saying that the, the research he was doing for the pod was going to influence the lyrics on the next off record. I remember him saying that. Yeah, and it totally yeah. does, right? Yeah. I love it. I love it. It's a great one. And uh, dude, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure off just took the manic ride. <laughs> Could be, man. You're kind of like borderline investigative journalist these days. What? Yeah. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. What do you got? Okay, well... You, you probably won't be surprised to hear my spiel this week is about music and skateboarding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, I, wa- I can't wait until I-, I talk to you after the interview, but go go for it. Yeah, uh, you know, big time connection for me, uh, I, and I'd be willing to bet between many of our, our listeners also. Um, I mean, I've talked about this before, but I was deeply entrenched in skateboard culture in the 80s, and, and you know, I bought my first punk rock albums because of stuff I saw in Thrasher magazine and and in skate videos too. They were a big influence on my musical tastes. I was thinking this week about videos in particular. Like where I grew up, they were hard to come by. So so when you when you got one, you watched them repeatedly. And that goes for anything back then, you know, movies oh, that yeah. I liked or, or whatever. But Oh, yeah. Like you passed around the Krull VHS <laughs> amongst your friends forever, right? Yeah. And also, there weren't that many skate videos in general. They didn't start becoming, you know, more prevalent until the 90s when camcorders came out. Yeah. Um, I mean, like those early Powell videos were all shot on film. Um, but a big one for us was... Me and my friends was the 1989 Powell video, Ban This, mainly because I owned it. So we'd watch it before we would go out skating. But also, you know, because it was one of the first videos that really featured street skating. So how did you get videos back then? I want to hear about that. Just coming to the city and going to skate shops. You buy it right from the skate shop if mom and dad took you into the city. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, So, I mean, we skated ramps too right because this is the 80s but you know once we once street skating really started going you know we were into like for this one for example ben this our favorite part for sure was the tommy guerrero part where he's just bombing these hills in san francisco and the music he skates to is the chuck tree song violin which came out on his debut solo album a few years later uh the album is called dreamin and it's on Caroline Records, the same label that released Bad Brain's Quickness a few years mm-hmm. prior to it. There, there are obvious connections there. Chuck has connections to the Bad Brains. He auditioned to be the singer for the band in 1989, but they ended up going with Taj Singleton, who left when HR came back at the last minute for Quickness. Uh, and this Chuck Treese album, Dreamin', was also uh, engineered... Or maybe not engineered. It was produced for sure. Produced and mixed by Ron Saint Germain, uh, same guy that did Quickness and I Against I. Chuck was heavily invo- involved in skateboarding. He was a pro for a while, and along with JFA, probably played in the quintessential skate rock band McRad. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't have a skate off with Minor Threat like JFA apparently did, right? <laughs> I don't know. I would love to see it if they did. <laughs> 
I mean, they'd probably win because, you know, Chuck Therese was actually a pro skater. They're also in some earlier Powell videos like Public Domain, and he's all over the skate rock comps uh, in McGrad. He's he's had quite the career in music. He's a multi-instrumentalist. He's played with Urge Overkill, collaborated extensively with HR as a, and, you know, as a solo artist. He, he's worked on tons of mainstream sessions, including stuff by Billy Joel, uh, G Love, and Special Sauce. What's that? It's a rap group. Oh, okay. Yep. Too many others to mention. On this one, on this Dream and record, he plays all the instruments. Um, it's kind of like a mix between Bad Brains of this era and Living Color. Mm. It's just a really killer record. Anyone who's ever seen that clip of Tommy Guerrero knows how awesome that song is. Uh, if you haven't, you should go watch it. So that was a big one for us. And... Our hero at the at the time, like a little bit later, was Matt Hensley, and our favorite company by the late '90s was H Street. Mario Rubicabala connection. He was on H Street, uh, one of the first companies, if not the first, to be owned and run by skaters. Uh, they were total punk rockers. It was obvious, and they're putting out these kind of Gonzo skate videos that weren't slick like the Powell ones. You know, they were all shot on camcorders or on like VHS camcorders or whatever. Yeah, right? yeah. Yep. Uh, and they were really pushing the limits of street skating and just totally DIY. So uh, Shackle Me Not was the first one for us, me and my friends, and even more important was Hocus Pocus. But our favorite was a kind of an EP almost. I think it was only like half an hour long, this VHS. Uh, and it's... The video was called This Is Not The New H Street Video. And the reason we loved it, other than the insane skating, was the soundtrack. For starters, it's loaded with Operation Ivy tracks, which is where I first heard Operation Ivy, and I bet many other people did mm -hmm. also. Mm -hmm. But the band from that video that we just loved was this mysterious band called Sub Society, with tracks like The Isolator and Squeaky Wheel, they were also on Hocus Pocus, but for whatever reason, the tracks on this video just really grabbed my friends and I. This was all pre-internet, obviously, so for years afterwards, I was always trying to learn more about Sub Society or find their music, which I eventually did at a record store in Calgary in the early 90s. I remember asking the clerk, have you ever heard of this band? And he, he pointed me to this seven-inch single called Relaxin'. And I remember him telling me, people are always asking about that that band. Apparently they were in a, a skate video or something. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. And also around this point, I had gotten the Thrasher Comp Parental Advisory Explicit Skate Rock, Volume 10, which has a sub-society track on it. Uh, so they were a San Diego punk band. Uh, they had an earlier single called Iceman, which I've never been able to find. It goes for like $300 on Discogs. Oof. And also a self-released tape in 89. Their vocalist, Stimmy, went on to form the killer band Inch, who don't sound uh, dissimilar to Sub Society. I would highly recommend all of their albums and singles, but especially for me, their second record, 1996's Dot Class C. Have you ever heard Inch, Ryan? I have not. You would like. I will soon. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, I held on to all of my skate rock tapes. Uh, if ever there was a series uh, due for a reissue, it's those. I swear I saw an ad in Thrasher in the 90s for a CD box set that never came out of the yeah. of the Thrasher 
compilation, the skate rock comp. I, I mean, I, I, I'm guessing it's like a licensing thing, you know, cause there's just so many bands. Yeah. Oh yeah. That'd be amazing. The thing about those comps is they're super eclectic and lots of just one-off bands. Yeah. You know, that were like almost like, uh, you know, what do we call them? Pig fuck bands or whatever. Like just in, in Canada. Yeah. yeah <laughs> bands just made up of skaters or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's cool. Like, you know, someone should do a podcast about skate rock or something. Oh yeah. Yeah. Those comps are amazing. And I love how, uh, I mean, maybe you're about to do it. Uh, you haven't done it yet, but how you hold over my head, how you have the skate rock <laughs> comp with that, uh, we chief song on it that I need. Yeah. Well, that's on that one that I just mentioned. Volume, volume 10. 10. Yeah. Yeah. It's on volume 10. I know. I know. So yeah. thank, thanks. Well, yeah. And it might be nostalgia reasons, but the, the version of that song for me just kills the album version, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. It was I, like, it was like our favorite song on that tape for sure. I threw you, I threw you a softball. That's yeah. okay. Yeah. I've got, I've got skin like a rhino for that one <laughs> after years of you taunting me with that one. <laughs> Hey, unrelated also, Ryan, um, but I watched that CCR Royal Albert Hall concert last night. Wicked, hey? Yeah, what a band. When Fogarty takes off his his Ricky and, and straps on that Les Paul and they just blaze through Fortunate Son. Wow. With, with black leather pants on the yeah. whole time too, hey? with So he's got a flannel on yep. and black leather pants. Yeah, he also sometimes wore brown leather pants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He really mixed it up. Yeah. So my buddy Graham, who I said, hey, dude, you got to watch this documentary. It just totally gives you um, an even greater appreciation. He, his comment back to me was like, wow, I can't believe Fogarty let all those guys strum along with him. <laughs> it is pretty impressive. Like, I think the band, the whole band is killer. But it's pretty insane how Fogarty wrote, sang, and soloed all of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's that is insane, man. Yeah, I mean his solo stuff is really good too, obviously. But like I've seen John Fogerty a couple times live, and he's still amazing live. Yeah, my dad just saw him like three weeks ago, yeah. and he's like, "Dude, that was good." Yeah, he can still sing like just like he does in that in that concert footage. Yeah, did you see the uh, that part that I was telling you about though? The the record exec like polishing <laughs> yeah. his revolver there. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously, you know, you got to give credit to, to John Fogarty, but Doug Clifford and Stu Cook, what a rhythm section, man, just locked in. Oh yeah. Dude, when I started playing bass, there was a few very formative, uh, bands that I copied to play along with, you know, like Chili Peppers, Dead Kennedys, but CCR was one for sure. Yeah. For sure, man. Yeah. And, uh, I mean like Fogarty's tone is just amazing. Yeah, I was just, I just read something about how that particular amp head that he had was like kind of a rare one or something. And they're, they're very, very highly sought after. I feel like they were like this weird padded leather or leatherette solid state thing from huh. the 60s. He's I don't just, know. He's just going straight into it. I mean, yeah. you didn't see a lot of pedals back then. I think he's rocking a trim pedal, obviously, but that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So much soul. Yeah. All right, let's take the manic ride. History lesson, part one. All right, Brent, where do we go from here? Well, I'll give you a little Blast recap here. Do it. Okay, so Blast grew out of early 80s Santa Cruz band 
MAD, M-A-D, which was an acronym for Mutually Assured Destruction. MAD's lineup was Bill Torgerson on drums, Dave Cooper on bass, Steve Borek on guitar, and Clifford Dinsmore on vocals. After recording a demo in 1982 and releasing one track on the alternative tentacles comp Not So Quiet on the Western Front, they added Mike Nider on second guitar and changed their name to Blast. This was circa 83. They made three attempts at recording their debut album, The Power of Expression, finally releasing it in 1986 on Green World Wishing Well. Steve Borak left the band after the recording, and they went down to a four-piece with just one guitar. After that came out at some point in 1987, they released a seven-inch single as SST-124, The School's Out, three-song seven-inch. Uh, they eventually added William Kip Duval of Georgia Hardcore Band and uh, Neon Christ on second guitar and recorded their second album, 1987's It's In My Blood, SST 106, where we had Dave Cooper as a guest. Kip left the band prior to the release of the album and his tracks were scrubbed. Shortly after SST released It's In My Blood, they reissued The Power of Expression as SST-148. And you can hear our interview with Clifford Dinsmore for that episode. That brings us to 1989 and their third record, Take the Manic Ride. Now, the whole band was heavily connected to skate culture, of course. There's the famous pic of them playing, you know, while their friend Rob Roskop just blasts a huge backside air over, over top of them which was used in, in advertising for Santa Cruz skateboards. Along with uh, many other SST bands, they were also on a number of Santa Cruz skate videos, like 1989's Streets on Fire, which uses the title track from It's In My Blood, along with Surf and Destroy, and Speed Freaks, also from 89, where Jason Jesse just annihilates a mini ramp to uh, a track off this record, Start the Machine. And then a year later, in 1990, Blast can be heard on the Santa Cruz video, A Reason for Living. But by this point, the band's sound and lineup had started to change slightly. Dave Cooper left the band right after the recording for Take the Manic Ride, and they brought in Ron Issa to tour the album. Ron Issa was a vet by this point. He played in Grim Reality, Whipping Boy, and probably most notably Social Unrest. Mm -hmm. They played quite a few shows from 89 to 91 with bands like Uniform Choice, Scream, SNFU, Neurosis, No Effects, All, Virulence, Jughead's Revenge, The Dwarves, Melvins, Vandals, DOA, Mad Parade, The Accused. 1989 they played throughout the U.S. Um, they, like, they played at CB's with Instead and American Standard. They played the Metro in Richmond, the Anthrax in Norwalk, Connecticut, First Ave, The Outhouse in Lawrence, Kansas. But then by 1990-91, it was, they never left San Francisco, uh, Berkeley, Santa Cruz, Sacramento, just playing around California, essentially. In 1989, they recorded a demo, which became known as the Bad Medication Demo. And two tracks, North America and Out of Control, are on that Santa Cruz video, A Reason for Living. In 1991, they recorded uh, what's known as the Whirlwind Demo. Both of these demos, Bad Medication and Whirlwind, are up on, on YouTube. People can, can check those out. The, the tracks are a slight departure, especially the bass playing. There's a lot of slap bass uh, on those. 
uh, and the vocals are a bit, you know, a bit more melodic at times, but it's still aggressive music. I mean, you know, that like they cover Black Sabbath's St. Vitus Dance on the Bad Medication demo, for example. And the bass player on those records, or on those demos, Ryan, uh, was John Schuler. He, uh, Ron Issa had left the band after touring for Manic Ride, and they brought in John Schuler. After Blast Fell Apart, um, after Blast Fell Apart, you could take a listen uh, to our interviews with Dave and Clifford to kind of get into what they did next. Uh, worth re-mentioning is Clifford's excellent project, Space Boy, uh, and his current band, Seized Up, as well. Mike, Mike formed a group called Blackout, uh, with Bill Torgerson and uh, Clifford's brother, Dave Dinsmore. They released one 7-inch in 1994 on Indecision Records. After adding Palm Desert legend Brant Bjork to the lineup, they changed their name to Lab. They released a 7-inch and a CD EP in 97-98. It's kind of, it's cool. It's like that desert rock, stoner rock stuff, like a lot of what was coming out on Man's Ruin around that era. Right. Mike had a few other projects you'll hear about in the interview. But then after reuniting in 2001 for a few shows and kind of going their separate ways again, uh, Mike and Clifford fully reunited Blast again uh, in 2013. And they kind of reissued and remixed It's In My Blood and released it as Blood. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they also reissued the complete sessions for that first record, The Power of Expression, as the expression of power, both on Southern Lord. Uh, Blast head Dave Grohl worked on the remix and along with Chuck Dukowski recorded and released the excellent For Those Who've Graced the Fire 7-inch on Rise Records. Now, Dukowski and Dave Grohl were actually standing in for the actual rhythm section for the new Blast lineup, which was Mike Clifford, Joey Castillo on drums, and Nick Oliveri on bass. And that lineup released a split single with I Hate God in 2016, also on Rise, uh, and they played a bunch of shows. And that's kind of where Blast stands today, Ryan. Should we throw it over to Mike, maybe? Yeah, man. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Mike Nider. Mike, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thank you. Okay, so we're, we're talking about Blast, Take the Manic Ride, but I want to go back a little bit. Um, are, did you grow up in Santa Cruz? Uh, well, since 1982, I believe I moved there, mm-hmm. uh, from, uh, Meadow Vista, which is like the foothills of Tahoe. And prior to that, I lived, I grew up in, uh, San Fernando Valley. So I kind of bounced from San Fernando Valley, LA to close to Tahoe, foothills of Tahoe to Santa Cruz. And the rest, uh, blast in general, Besides Clifford, uh, we all grew up since like 1976, I believe, in Meadow Vista. So Clifford, I mean, uh, Bill, Dave, Cooper, and uh, Steve, we all lived in Meadow Vista together and skated before Blast, pre-Blast. Yeah, (laughs) is that kind of how you met those guys, through skateboarding? Uh, Well, school. Mm-hmm. Basically, I mean, we lived in the in the hills, and there wasn't much to do. And uh, Dave, uh, his dad lived in Santa Cruz, and his mom lived in Meadow Vista, so he went back and forth. Mm-hmm. Bill lived in Meadow Vista, I think, since forever, and 
uh, I, I went from LA to uh, Meadow Vista. So I was in sixth grade and I met Bill and Dave. So we were in middle school together, basically. And it was just the first thing we did, to, you know, we started skateboarding together and evolved from there. <laughs> okay. Uh, when did you start playing guitar? Guitar, uh, another thing to liven up the mountains. Uh, well, we had, we pretty much hung out every day and skateboarded together, you know. And it was pretty much like at some point, I think in 79 or 78 maybe, mm -hmm. uh, we went from, you know, cranking Sabbath and uh, Van Halen and some tough tunes back then. It's straight into punk rock. And we knew then we wanted to play music and skateboard pretty much. And so it was almost like drawing straws. Okay, what instrument do you want to play? That's how, that's how funny it was. And, uh, I got the guitar. So I was pretty much, I think 78, 77, possibly 79. Yet, somewhere around there. <laughs> like as a guitar player, what's kind of like the first music that you got into? As far as playing guitar too? Sure, yeah. I When I was living in L.A., I had older siblings. And so at the time, there was a lot of Sabbath and Deep Purple, Led mm -hmm. Zeppelin, you know, that whole thing on the radio and eight tracks and they'd have their vans and Everyone was skateboarding around LA and, you know, barefoot. And it's just a pitch in a scene ever. Yeah. Now I was really thankful to actually experience that. So I kind of got to tag along and witness the whole thing. And, uh, as I got, you know, I started skateboarding at age seven. So mm -hmm. I kind of watched, carried around my skateboard and, uh, watching them do their thing and this heavy music and concerts, parties and that fun stuff they were doing. And for me, it kind of evolved into taking, you know, skateboarding a little more serious. And all of a sudden they have a band like, you know, ACTC and Sabbath pop into the scene and which made it even like, wow, what the fuck is this? And, you know, bitching stuff and, and, uh, you know, all of a sudden you have punk rock that came into the scene mm -hmm. and it just changed everything for me personally. Yeah. I mean, it was like a natural, natural progression. I mean, you got TiVo and 999 and, you know, Sex Pistols and all that clash, obviously. But all just business music just kind of happens. And, I just take it to a different level and, you know, it's funny. It's funny that you mentioned that I've, we've had other, you know, skaters on the show and stuff. And, uh, it's funny, like Devo always comes up <laughs> as like a, a band that was associated with skateboarding. Yeah, isn't that crazy? I mean, I don't know. It just kind of goes hand in hand or at the time it, it just, I'm not sure what it was, but they just went together, you know, it, it fits perfect. Mm -hmm. And Clifford, he's, he's, you know, he's 
he's surfed more than skated and the rest of us skated more than surfed and but it all kind of just works together and the whole brotherhood ab- about it is just really good and made everyone's life positive and bitching yeah uh, so we're thankful for all of it and the whole timing of it it was bitching you know to evolve with it yeah and you've spent that's what uh, blast uh, is what it is to be you know honest yeah when did you personally start working for like santa cruz skateboards well that's the funny part i mean we were in high school and uh up in the mountains and we were going back and forth to dave's house you know meeting a bunch of great people and having fun in santa cruz and we'd go back to the mountains to go to high school and uh my two favorite things were like santa cruz skateboards and black flag and that was it for me. I mean, shit, those two things at the time were just the greatest. So I, uh, I think I took, I bailed out of high school early and took my GED or something just to go to, uh, well, actually first I went down to LA and tried to pull it off. And for some reason, everyone else went to Santa Cruz. But I think Dave called and said, come on, let's start a band. And, you know, because we've all played together are pretty much mm-hmm. since ninth grade in high school or something like that. And LA, I was, I wasn't pulling it, you know, for some reason, or I don't know what it was, but so I went to Santa Cruz in 1982 and, you know, I was just all hip about Santa Cruz and skateboards and black flags. So I got to Santa Cruz and I, I got a job at uh, NHF, Santa Cruz Sports. Mm-hmm. I think it was night, spring of 82, I believe. And I think I ended up working there until about 99 or something. Wow. <laughs> but what had happened is, doing two favorite things in high school, then I got a job at Santa Cruz Skateboards, and then I got signed by Black Flag's label, SST. <laughs> so the two things I dug, it happened for me, and I was, you know, I was just insane. Wow. So naturally, I combined the two, and I hooked those two guys up. So that's why you see all the SST. I was going to ask, yeah. Music and all the Santa Cruz videos. Mm-hmm. So, not just a natural thing. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I was curious, you know, like, when you see... Um, you know, Jason Jesse, for example, skating to blast in in Speed Freaks. Like, I mean, a is he is he selecting blast or is it kind of just like whoever's make assembling the video, just picking the songs at random? Uh, I everyone kind of well the SST thing and Santa Cruz thing. I connected, you know, and at the time SST was just as insane as Santa Cruz was. And they both were just exploding at the time. And Jason, actually, him and I were friends. So that's why I think he really was in the blast. You know, he dug the, the power and the whole thing of it. And so he, he got, he was in the blast and then he got signed to Santa Cruz skateboards. And we just naturally, you know, became friends back then. And, so that's, you know, I'm not sh- sh- sure. I mean, that's how it happened for him, but I'm not sure exactly what it was, but, he, you know, he was in the blast. And 
the, the whole black flag, fire hose, meat puppets, all that whole thing. Yeah. Everyone kind of just, ah, give me meat puppets. You know, everyone kind of chose their favorite thing. Right. <laughs> so there was a little bit of choice, but, you know, SST was definitely the prominent label mm-hmm. at the time. But even still, I feel like SST should have probably paid Santa Cruz to, like, be in those videos, you know. it It's probably insane how many people got hip to, to, to bands because of those videos. Oh, oh, fully. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. Is, it's funny. Is, you know, I connected the two. So I'm like, whoa, this is weird. I, I, I talk to Chuck all the time still. We're still, you know, in contact. Mm-hmm. SST definitely, well, I think they both benefited from each other, but definitely SST for sure. Yeah. Those early Santa Cruz videos are so innovative too. And just like the music, you know, the fact that Speed Freaks, you know, kind of allowed skaters that weren't on Santa Cruz to be in their video. Yeah. Nobody was doing that. (laughs) No, it was insane at the time. Like, you know, Julian Stranger and Otis and stuff, and shit is just crazy. The two at the time were just exploding, and it was really neat to see. It worked so well together, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could have been something totally different, and it just wouldn't have worked as good, you know? So that was neat. That was fucking, that was really cool. Yeah. Well, Santa Cruz was definitely, like, you know, the punk rock crew at that time, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah for sure and like even blast you know playing i'm sure you played you know at the lips of tons of bowls at, at contests and things like that oh yeah i mean we play parties and, <laughs> and skate events and stuff we actually uh is hilarious we had an apartment it was like a one bedroom apartment and we built rooms inside of it me and Dave and Bill and uh, I think Ross Scott at one point we turned it into like a like a, a five cubicle room one bedroom apartment and it was right next door to NHS so you know like Steve Olson or Gibson or anybody that came down you know they would instantly go to the blast house you know it'd be this <laughs> party okay we're gonna go practice and we'd bring whoever was in town with us at the time. And it's always a really good time. <laughs> Were you like, the a... blast, I mean, Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz, Novak, you know, he always let me blast was like, whatever you need, go for it. Leave. Right. If you need to go on tour or anything like that. So it was great. Amazing. Were you a, yourself a, a vert skater or a street skater or both? Oh, uh, vert skater. Yeah. I mean, we, Actually, both, because we were in the mountains when we started skateboarding. I mean, I was in L.A., but when we all skated together, it was more of like a we started our own team. It was a mob town, you know, log town. It was kind of we were just having you know kids having fun, and we actually uh, had our our juniors, our middle school. They had contests for us and stuff, so we'd close the school down and. Everyone would watch us skate and have contests. It was crazy. But, you know, Cooper and Bill and our other friends, Tim and Todd Lemmer and Steve, and, you know, we'd 
build half pipes and his half pipe that lasted the longest was at the Lemmer house. And so every day after school, we'd go there and skate and that's pretty much a daily event. And other than that, we'd go off and try to find empty pools or empty washes and see what kind of banks we'd find in town or just bomb the town. So it was just like, that's all we did was just skateboard. <laughs> I mean, it was the best. Skating and punk rock, man. Like, was there ever, uh, did it ever come close to getting a Mike Nider pro model? Yeah, actually. I mean, me, I was, at one point, I was skate with Roscoff every day. And so eventually, you know, that just kind of pushes you and rubs off on you. And so I'd just go with him wherever we would go skate and, you know, there'd be pools and all these people's ramps and we travel to different spots and uh like Roscoff and I would have a little push each other and have a little contest and try to do things and I think I was just at that point too like I could just go for it and do this I'm right there and uh last just kind of kicked it in the gear and I kind of just backed off from it and went into a blast yeah which was you know I shouldn't have shared the ball but I kind of just did the blasting a little bit more yeah well skate, skating with really good skaters is a lot like playing in a band with really good musicians <laughs> it's going to make you better you know yeah totally yeah. I mean it's funny because blast you know Joey Castillo has been playing drums with us and the first time we played with Joey, he had it fucking just dialed, nailed to the records, you know, because that's how he learned. Right. And with with Bill, we kind of did off the cuff stuff where oh, let's do this this time and this next time, and it'd kind of be a little more off off, you know, like just to do it purposely, because that's what Blast does, you know. Mm-hmm. And so playing with Joey, he just tightened the whole ship up and. That's kind of cool to lay them tight like that to the record. Mm-hmm. As far as Blast goes, fast forwarding a bit to the Take the Manic Ride era, what what was kind of the status of Blast at that time? Were you were you still touring pretty heavily? Yeah, I mean, SST was uh, making a little bit of changes and stuff, and uh, we were on global, you know. Jordan at Global mm-hmm. and Chuck's label label booking label for SST. Yeah. They they did blast did you know, they did really well for us and so they kept us busy and kept us doing good shows and stuff and that's what happened. We were kinda of like, okay, every year I think we'd do Power of Expression and then play a bunch, tour bunch, do to my blood and play a bunch, tour bunch, and then we hit Manic Ride and did the same. Uh, the album was engineered by Dave Ratt. Tell me about that. I, it, it seems like he was maybe just starting to get into engineering records. I kind of associate him more with like a, you know, a front of house sound guy. Well, the story with Blast and, and Rat Sound is, uh, I think, well, the first time we experienced Rat Sound was they did a couple tours, or, or the first tour they did with Black Flag. Mm-hmm. And that's how uh, Gann and Chuck, I think, kind of did this power amps and preamp stuff is from 
rat sounds crazy craziness he just had this massive fucking sound that was just mind-blowing for black flag and it was just this manic tour they did and fuck, dave would just load and set up and they brought that sound with him i don't know how many times they actually did that but that's you know where we met dave and brian so uh friendship evolved from there and they started their company i think they moved it to receda or something like that but we'd play a you know we'd you know book a blast show and basically our routine was we'd drive down to uh dave and brian's warehouse see them and then hit sst and ransack the <laughs> warehouse and then pick up greg and chuck and we'd go party and then the next night we played the show and that was pretty much our routine. <laughs> so it was pretty crazy. And then, you know, we kind of came to the thing where Dave built our equipment for us and rat sounds started picking up major momentum. They started getting big shows. Yeah. <laughs> Blue peppers and Nirvana started making sure that they had rat sound and they built our equipment. So that was kind of the, you know, rat sound stuff for blast. And, Okay, and coming up, and this is kind of the most ironic part about the record is we uh, wanted the fucking heaviest live sound on a record that we could possibly achieve. Mm-hmm. And no, who who know better than Dave? You know, <laughs> Dave Rat. He's the best live engineer ever. Like, you want a fucking heavy? Let's let's get Dave. Oh my God, why don't we think about that? Let's get Dave. He's a mad scientist behind the you know console. He's a mm-hmm. genius. <laughs> so he's down. He's like, oh, fuck, let's do it. I've never done the studio before. And this is perfect. This is going to be the best. So Dave actually, he, he lives in Ventura, Oxnard, Ventura. He actually hoboed on a train and hopped up to Santa Cruz. <laughs> and we booked some time in Mars Studio in Aptos. We're like, okay, perfect. Dave shows up uh, with the songs are all dialed, written, ready to go. The studio's there. You know, we set up. And you get Dave behind, you know, a console and amps and effects. And he has to touch every button. Like, he's just like kid in a toy store. He's stoked. He's amped. He's ready to go. He's going to make his record live. So, fuck, he starts playing with all the stuff, seeing what's what, you know, becoming familiar with it. Uh naturally we're like okay you know let's figure this out and get everything dialed and so he did you know he goes i'm just gonna play with things while you guys record everything and we'll get this recorded and fuck me we'll finish it it'll be best so we did that we recorded and he did everything he wanted to do and the way he mic'd it and did everything so we're okay let's do the mix down (laughs) and unfortunately we're like okay, turn those gates off and all that stupid shit and get rid of that fucking reverb and blah, blah, blah. Because he thought all oh, that was uh, external, not internal. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it ended up being internal, so he couldn't turn shit off. We did the whole record with that shit on. <laughs> so we were just looking at each other going, oh, fuck, there's so much for the live sound, you know? That's fucking out the door. So he turned it into what he could, 
with what he had. And we're just like, oh, man, we, you know, giving it to Chuck or Greg. We're like, oh, man, it's, should we do this again? Should we just, it is what it is, you know? And uh, he just did the best he could with it. And mm-hmm. Greg got it, and he just, he, he dug it. So he was just, he was just moving ahead with this, what we got. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's the funny thing is, you know, we've expected and we wanted that just live sound because Blast is a live band. I mean, you'll never capture us in a studio compared to what we play live. It's just not going to happen. I think we did, we recorded Power of Expression three different times to try to get that feel. And we can never care because we're just a live band. But uh, that's what we wanted to do was take the manic ride. And it just uh, ended up not being a live sound. Are you are you cool with it now, though, when you hear it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wish it was what we wanted, but it, it's it's such a it's such a trippy manic record that it's almost it was supposed to be like that, you know. Yeah, it is trippy. There's and, some there's some like experimentation on this one. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, hugely and. I think uh, I think it's just it's it's it is what it is. And hopefully, we could you know do some remastering or something and mm-hmm. do that kind of thing. But I think the record itself is just bitching. Yeah, the <laughs> the intro kind of riff to the song "It's Time." I don't know if you if you recall, but. It sounds almost like an intention, like an intentional nod to Black Sabbath. At the time, uh, yeah, yeah, it was a, uh, is the the demented chord pattern is if you hit that chord, you know the single notes that we're hitting on that. Yeah, yeah. If you actually hit that as if you actually hit that as a chord, that's the diminished chord like a lot that we use a lot throughout our history of, in the band. Mm-hmm. And I think like it's the same chord, like you, you hear damaged black flag. And so it's kind of, everyone kind of nodded that to Sabbath. We just took it a little further. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's why Cliff kind of makes a mockery of, of it a little bit <laughs> in the beginning. The kind been tricked again, you know. Yeah. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's Sabbath and Flag, obviously, that's what we love and grew up on at mm-hmm, the time, mm-hmm. and it influenced us majorly. I mean, the first time we saw Black Flag, I think, it was 1979, uh, Berkeley Hall and Barrington Hall in Berkeley, and that kind of you know, changed everything, you know. Get it? Like, oh shit! This is how you do it. Because right. we used to skateboard and then bombard, see, you know, punk shows in San Francisco from the mountains. So we'd bombard, you know, skate and skate all the way down and hit the spots and then get to Mabuhay Gardens or whatever it was at the time. We got to see, you know, adolescents and germs and China White and all oh. these great bands. <laughs> Devo, everybody, all the great bands, and we were kids, you know, so, you know, we'd party, have fun, and all of a sudden we'd see Black Flag, and we were just kind of standing there with our 
jaw on the ground. Like, Holy <laughs> shit. They're serious and they're pissed. And that's what we like. We're serious and pissed. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you take a little blast, you know, blast, take it a little further than flag, obviously. Oh, definitely. Yep. You kind of combine this Sabbath and flag thing and it's a big part of blast. Mm-hmm. The kind of manipulated vocal at the end of Start the Machine and at the start of uh, Turn and Face the World, do you recall how that was done? Uh, as far as, as which aspect? Like the manipulated vocal part? Well, that's the thing. I think the Manic Riot record was just fucking, it was insane. I mean, we, tr- I mean, stuff that didn't make it on there even would be mind blowing to hear. We did so much craziness and you know, that's why the, the title is so serving to that record. Mm. But we, you know, I think Bill and I did a lot of weird stuff back, backing vocals and stuff. And Cliff did, you know, a few things that were just, uh, you know, splash tracks where you do these, you know, self lyrics that he had for this stuff and kind of did it in the background. Mm-hmm. And then Dave, we kind of uh, put it all together and kind of took stuff out, pushed stuff up, took stuff down. And at any spots that were hollow, empty, we would kind of add stuff to it and we kind of just had a, we had a lot of fucking fun with it. <laughs> it I don't know if it was fun or meant to be or just weird but we had <laughs> definitely some stuff that didn't even make it on there that way I wish did. Yeah. What about writing? Because I mean most of these songs and I think most blast songs actually you're credited as writing the music and then and then Clifford's the vocals so are you like bringing in whole songs to practice? Or how did that work? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I've been working on a bunch of those songs, you know, before, way before the record. And we were playing a lot of them live. Mm-hmm. I did the same thing with It's In My Blood. You know, I had, I think, three or four songs finished by the time we even finished Power of Expression. So, you know, we used to play like, our practices, I think, were like, sometimes seven hours. Wow. <laughs> we'd just play all night and we'd try to play. Sometimes we'd play four, five times a day. We were just, that's all we did. But yeah, I, I, we wrote uh, the music together. I mean, I actually wrote the songs, but we built, built it together. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yep. Yep. So, uh, I'd write these songs and bring them to Dave and Bill and uh, we would work on them together, you know, like, like the bass intro to uh, Turn and Face This World. You know, for me, I had, I had just a drawn E back then. I'd hit an E and wah, I just let it carry. And, you know, we could have just left it like that. And, you know, instead we chose to do like a bass line, blah, 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 Dave would do his bass line to it. And right. Bill would hit the, you know, hit the hi-hat. So we kind of built a lot of stuff together, but the songs in a whole were done. Like I'd bring them down. And then we'd give the ghetto box recording to Clifford and he would 
write to it. Ah. And he would go sit at practice and write to it. And, you know, we just, we'd pound him live and we'd record, you know, get a box of tapes for him. And what we did, I don't know, whatever we were doing really worked well. We liked what we were doing. So Yeah. Uh, the cover art for Manic Ride, um, Justin Forbes, it almost looks like, you know, skateboard art, like something Jim Phillips would have done or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, Justin's rad. Did he? Uh, who who like, is Justin? Justin Forbes, actually, he's, he's, we, at Santa Cruz Skateboards, we'd have artists, guest artists, pretty much, and they'd come in and do a board or do, uh, some ads or some <clears throat> t-shirt art or whatever it would be. Justin was one of those artists. Mm. He came in and did something. I forgot what it was. And he was just a really bitching artist. I think I hit him up to do the art. And, you know, Cliff, we would all come up with the concepts, you know, it's in my blood. We'd all come with concepts and bring it to the artist. Mm-hmm. And their interpretation of it was what you see and Justin's at the time was doing skateboards and all that stuff. So naturally it kind of fits right in Santa Cruz skateboards, mm-hmm. Jim Phillips art. Yeah. I, he actually worked for Jim Phillips for quite some time because actually Jim Phillips branched out and did Phillips studios. Right. So he had Keith Meek working for him and uh, Justin Forbes and, a few guys and we, we got a lot of work external from Santa Cruz skateboards right yeah because Santa Cruz skateboards always had an art department but Justin Forbes we hit him up to do the, the cover and it actually turned out really nice mm-hmm. so so one of the other than the the Jason Jesse uh, Speed Freaks part the first time I think I ever heard Blast actually was on the Thrasher comp Ponds of the Apocalypse. And this is post Manic yeah. Ride when the, you know, when the sound started ta- changing a little bit. Tell, t- talk to me about that era of Blast. I'm really curious about, you know, the bad medication whirlwind era of the band. Uh, well, what happened is like, like we had kind of had evolving members always in Blast. And, but like, we had Kip, or you know, Kip Duvall, yep. William Duvall, and yep. he recorded with "It's in My Blood." But he left pretty much during the recording, and then during the recording of "Manic Ride," Dave wanted to do his own thing, so he bailed. And then we got like Ron Issa and John Schuler to play bass with us, and so we were we had a bunch of songs finished again during the manic ride, which we could have probably put on the manic ride, but we already had enough songs. So we were ready to start lining up the next record. And then we were kind of going through bass players things and SST started kind of deteriorating a little bit eternally and changing. And so things were not as, lined up as we wanted them like okay this is what's happening no one knew what was happening anymore so it was kind of dissolved a little bit but we were still hitting it hard and but it was just with different bass players so we let 
them bringing their thing and so they kind of brought you know like this certain like bad medication beat to it or North America style to you know we let them do their thing and we came into blast so we kind of brought it all together with what we were doing and brought in what they wanted to do and kind of just did like a group thing and mm-hmm. so we were just kind of messing around trying new things not necessarily it was going to go on the record and this is what we are and this is what we do but just you know kind of messing around and wanted to hear some different stuff and uh, so we just did a bunch of demos we were just doing a bunch of cool stuff and still playing shows and things music scene kind of changed a little bit and it was shifting into the grunge and to the desert and everything's got kind of weird everything everybody backed off you know he looked at bands trying you know becoming a little more rock than punk and you know everything started everyone was finding stuff back then but uh sst stopped signing bands pretty much at the time and global booking dissolved and we were changing bass players and we never, this is a bummer too, because we, we always talk about like, shit, we should have just did our thing and did it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Instead, instead it fast, but instead we kind of just backed off ourselves and did other things, experimented, having fun with other bands and stuff. And right. But we all we always knew we wanted to play and do something, but it, it just became really hard for us to pull something off. What has there ever been any any discussion on your end, you know, with Clifford or whoever about releasing those demos officially? Uh, no, I think we talk about sometimes of maybe grabbing some and putting stuff out, but we're not super super stoked on all of them, so I don't think we ever wanted them to get out. Hmm. I mean, there's some stuff like North America. Stuff like that, where I think Jason Jesse took it and he wanted to use it, and he, you know, so he put it on his parts, some unreleased blast stuff. But other than that, we were kind of just like, ah, let's sit on this stuff and figure it out. And you know, Cliff and I, we we can write all day long. We love it. We love it. And I think we would just rather just do new stuff and look back on some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I think we talked about doing Chunk of Heaven again and stuff on the new record but other than that because we know there was some North America and Childlike and Netherworld Crawl and there's some really good stuff and I think not the song itself but the recordings is what never want, let us want to put mm. that stuff out you know mm-hmm. demos <laughs> because it just wasn't heavy yeah it was just never heavy enough well, yeah. demos we like we love shitty recordings and <laughs> You know that kind of stuff. We, you know, we're into that. We love the live sound, but for some reason, our demos got really like muddied up by this junk in the studio, like mm. gates and reverbs and stuff we're not into. We like raw fucking sound, you know. Mm-hmm. Push record on a ghetto box and record it. That's what we like. You know, that's the way it should be. You know, it's just it's matted and muddied up by all the crap. So that's the kind of what we were bummed about, not necessarily the songs or anything, but mm-hmm. 
so we still to this day we you know we pass tunes back and forth and we're trying to build what we want to put out and which i think if we wanted to realistically we could probably put out three records right now but we're just uh it's i think the recordings themselves and cliff he's just like he was trying fun shit too you know it wasn't just the band so he's yeah. like ah fuck that he wants you know, he wasn't into it he did some bits and stuff and great lyrics of course but i think we just if we're we you know if someone said fuck we, we do this stuff well we record it we'd be down for that we're always down to do stuff but mm-hmm. i think the studio sound itself just kind of fucked it up for us was uh blackout your next band yeah, after Blast, I think uh, uh, I think like John Schuler ended up moving down to the desert. Uh, we got Dave Dinsmore and Bill and I, Clifford's brother, and we just started playing music, you know, doing a three-piece. And so Blackout was the next band. And then I don't know what happened, but we were like, something happened with the name or something, so we just had to change the name i mean basically so we changed the name to lab lab and same band pretty much Hmm. i mean and then it was just dave uh dinsmore and bill and i okay throughout the 90s pretty much and and like how active was lab as a band Lab was really active i mean we should have recorded more i mean when Nirvana was at its peak or whatever, Dave Grohl started his thing. You know, he had a studio called the Laundry Room up in Seattle. Mm-hmm. So he'd call and say, come up and record, and I'm going to start a new label. Uh, uh, what's it called? Roswell. And you guys, you know, you could be the first band on there. And was like, bitching. So we'd jam up there and he'd record a bunch of stuff for us. Nirvana took off, I think so, and Intensely, he just couldn't do anything anymore at the time, so I got to focus on that, obviously. But so that didn't happen for us. And then we just, I think, did some a bunch of demoing, and we did a bunch of touring with Fu Manchu, and at uh, we go down the desert, and then you know Brent saw it and was so into it, he moved up to Santa Cruz and joined the band. So we had Brent Bjork in the band for a while. So it was just really insane thing lab was doing but we never put the music out we always just kind of held on to it that's the wild thing to me though is you you know you've got like man's ruin and all these desert bands or i don't know stoner rock bands people you know people called it at that time or whatever i feel like so many bands were catching up to what blast had already been doing for like you know 15 (laughs) years or something yeah, that's what I mean. That's what Grohl was tripping out on when we were at a studio. Like Chuck came in, and I think Craig Anderson and Dave Grohl—they were all talking about that. Like, it's fucking weird. It's like Blast is timeless. Yeah, and it, it could, yeah, you could say that. I mean, Blast was a big part of the influence of Stoner Rock or whatever all those bands were doing. Got in the eighties. It's just we probably could have executed it better, but I think we just kind of wanted to stick to our our thing and hold it back. 
know, we shouldn't have. We should have had more fun with it. But yeah. What about Gusto? Gusto, uh, what year was that? I think it was like 2005 or something. Uh, me and Dave Dinsmore wanted to do the lab thing again. And, uh, Bill had moved to Hawaii and so he wasn't around any longer. And Dave did a record, I think with Brant and Che, I mean, Brant and Alfredo. So called Che. So Brant was doing his thing. So Alfredo was down. And so we picked, got Alfredo and, Fernandez, he did the Queen's Circus record. Uh, so we did wanted to do this band, Gusto. And uh, we recorded, I think, three songs or something. And I think we started playing a lot and doing some shows with Fu Manchu. And uh, went, did this full, uh, I think we're going to do this full record with Schneeby, who did the J record. And we started the record, and we never finished it. We never did anything with it. And somehow everyone kind of, I don't know, personal problems or whatever for some people. So everyone's going through weird stuff. But it never got finished, and that's another thing that would be really nice to finish. Mm-hmm. But we never did. I feel like, though, when Blast reformed, you kind of got the credit you deserved. <laughs> Does it feel that way to you <laughs> for being like such an inspiration uh, to that whole scene? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I just, I mean, Dave, we've never been treated so well ever. You know, we went to Dave's studio and he was just so gracious. And, uh, Greg Anderson from Southern Lord, it was just so nice. And it was nice to see Blast do some fun stuff like that and be treated so great. And we got Nick Oliveri and uh, actually Joey Castillo and they were just so bitching and they're so good. And it was so fun to play with them. And, you know, you play with people like Joey and so many bands just want the dude to hire him that are making <laughs> way more money, money than us. You know, that's what Joey does for a living. So yeah, he goes and he loves everyone and plays it, you know, as much as he can. So if he gets a gig, he'll have to go do it. If he digs it, I mean, he turns down a ton of shit, but he loves glass. That's his thing. And he wants to do it so bad, but you know, he, he had to go make some money and have, you know, do his thing. And so blast always kind of, I mean, till this day, we're still all talking about, oh, we got to do this records, you know, and Dave, I'll talk to Dave. Oh, God, I want to do these records. I'll do the record. He'll commit. And he'll get so busy with Foo Fighters. It's just like impossible. So Blast, you know, and Joey is just like, I want to make time for it. And something comes up where he's like, I can't turn this down. I got to do this. <laughs> so we all still talk and email like, we got to do this. So it's really bitching, but I still feel like I'm not going to be satisfied until we put out a couple more Blast records, you know? Yeah, because we did those EPs and those EPs were insane, and we got these records we wanted to. So it's just this last is not done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lots good to hear. I mean, like the blast heads everywhere. You know, all all the stuff you did when you reunited was amazing, but like nothing would compare to a new full length 
record for sure. Exactly, and it's it's more blasty than ever if you get to hear these songs. And uh, it's just is going to be brutal. And that's I think a little bit frustrating, so that's why I'm not totally satisfied because I know what could come out and what's waiting in, in the works, you know. So it's just actually, you know, getting these guys to do it because next year it's basically the band's 40th anniversary, wow. not necessarily the record, the records, but the band. Right. So we wanted to do this 40 year celebration thing. And, uh, I think Nick has, Nick said he's into it and he's got time and Joey's trying to work it out. I think he's got a lot, of, he's really been busy with Bronx and circle jerks. And, mm-hmm. So we're trying to figure it out. We're trying to make it happen. And, you know, if we can get whoever to do it and actually finish the record, you know, we're, we're ready. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll all have our fingers crossed that that happens. Uh, oh, and thing. <laughs> yeah. I hope it does. <laughs> There's been a lot of music that's been set aside, and hopefully someday we could figure out how to share it all, you know. But mm-hmm. uh, in the meantime, we got these new teams tunes just waiting and hopefully we can get them out so everyone could have fun with us and get stoked. Yeah. Amazing. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm sorry for making it so hard. No, I know we've been trying to do this for some time and no. I've been, I'm more of an introvert than a dick. So that's it's hard to, to do this <laughs> no no so not I really at all appreciate you doing it I'm, I'm stoked that you're doing it i fucking super rad i appreciate it thank you thank you all right so great to hear from mike um i gotta say though that i kind of feel like you know if people don't know this podcast was really brant's idea at the very very beginning um, but i kind of feel like you might be a little bit more fulfilled than usual uh, to have your <laughs> your interview with Mike and just totally skateboy fanboy out on that. Um, I just I just loved hearing you guys talk about the the good old days. And I do think you know you had this in the back of your mind as like finally I'll get to interview Mike Knighter if we get this podcast off the ground. So <laughs> congrats on that. Now in your honor though this week I actually rewatched Thrashin. Nice. Yeah, so I rewatched Thrashin, and I, I question for you. Uh, well, actually, two maybe. My sense after watching Thrashin is they did a way better job at making Josh Brolin look like he can actually skate than they did for Christian Slater and Gleaming the Cube. Yeah, right? he did skate for it. Josh yeah, Brolin like, did. Yeah. Yeah, he did some skating. So uh, maybe three questions. Okay, so first of all. Did you put duct tape on your fingers in the 80s? <laughs> no, just on my shoes. <laughs> okay, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then uh, number two, do you agree that Hook and the Daggers would have skated for Santa Cruz? Oh, most deaf. Yeah, yeah right? Yeah. Right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but great interview, man. So great to hear that one. Yeah, like Mike en- mentions at the end, I've been bugging Mike to be on the podcast from day one with Blast. And all respect to to. Dave and to Clifford as well, because I also would have been hitting them up, you know, later on. But yeah, I I wanted to get Mike because I knew about his connection to skateboarding and, you know, uh, worth the wait for sure. He's just the yeah. nicest dude. 
amazing, amazing interview. Yeah. I just like, I hope that people who have that same affinity for 80s skate culture get, get to hear that because it's just amazing. Oh man. Like these guys were living the life of Riley down there in Santa Cruz, <laughs> just shredding guitars and bombing hills all day, every day. Yeah. Hanging out with all these legendary skate punks and releasing amazing records on the coolest independent label of its era. Just amazing. Yeah. Uh, here's a hot tip I got from Mike post interview, uh, for all the blast heads. Uh, he gave me permission to mention this Southern Lord is reissuing take the manic ride in early 2023 in a gatefold LP. That'll be good. And I think he mentions this in the interview, but he, he mentioned this too, to me later, it's blasts 40 year anniversary next year. And Mike says there's going to be some stuff happening. Cool. Yeah. Wow. Maybe they'll play the Mojack windup. Why not? Exactly. Right. I mean, we're going to end up in their neighborhood. Yeah. Re remember the road trip? We got to have a ramp. We got to have like a, a mini <laughs> ramp, like a launch ramp or something at our windup. Well, dude, one of the three days is bands playing at a skate comp. Is it? Yes. Okay. Don't you remember? You're, you're supposed to be working the itinerary, bro. <laughs> Ah, whatever. Okay. Hey, uh, let me hit you with a couple of spiels I uh, pulled from the Mojack stacks too, oh. by the way, here. Okay? Okay. Yeah. So there's not enough writing out there on Blast, but I could find some. Um, so one place that uh, I found a good spiel about Blast in is Cross Over the Edge. Right. The Alexandros Anisiadis book. And there's a, there's a good spiel in there. Um, here's what Cliff said. We were skateboarders who wanted to play music in a style that was overlooked, a style that would include the blending of all those diverse musical influences from Black Flag to Black Sabbath to skate punk. So we brought it. Playing on bills alongside established hardcore punk bands such as Black Flag and Circle Jerks as early as 83 and 84, Blast started to channel their challenging sonic power from the very beginning. Here's Clifford again. Even though a lot of the so-called crossover bands tried to make more money back then and cash in from both punks and metalheads, we didn't. Our goal was simply to express our different influences through our music. We were lucky enough to be accepted by fans of punk, hardcore, and thrash metal. Although that crossover wasn't just musical, but cultural too. Even though punk was, for the most part, hijacked by pop stars. <laughs> That's what Cliff is saying there, and he's, I'm sure he's kind of foreshadowing to the later years when punk was hijacked, you know, yep. late late 90s, whatnot. There's also some spiels in Jim Rulin's recent book, Corporate Rock Sucks. Um, he actually, you were mentioning how Blast was originally on Green World. Right, yeah. There, there's a spiel in Jim's book about how when Green World went under, Green World was a distributor of SST. It was a big financial blow to SST, but it also created the opportunity for Greg Inn to scoop up uh, Blast, essentially. Right. Yep. So here's what Jim said about that. One silver lining of Green World's downfall was the signing of the Santa Cruz hardcore band Blast. Black Flag had played with the band in the summer of 84, and Rollins mocked the band in his journals for copying Black Flag's sound. This criticism wasn't entirely without merit. Blast featured two guitarists who both played Dan Armstrong guitars, and at times the band was able to replicate Ginn's signature tone with uncanny accuracy. The band continued to develop and grow, and after Black Flag disbanded, 
Blast's brand of hardcore felt necessary, even essential. Here's what Clifford said there. We got signed to SST by playing a Ghetto Blaster recording of It's In My Blood for Greg in our van. And I think Clifford mentioned that in our interview with him as well, right? Yeah. It was either him or Dave. Yeah. Yeah. And then later on, here's what Jim said about Blast around the time of this record, Take the Manic Ride. So we're talking 89, right? Here's what Jim said. The deluge of records SST unleashed in 89 wasn't as mighty as the previous year, but it was impressive nonetheless. And then he's talking about all the records, you know, just giving some examples. Soundgarden, St. Vitus, Sylvia Juncosa, Descendants, Bad Brain, Swa, DC3. And then he says, and Blast, whose latest album, Take the Manic Ride, affirmed it was the only hardcore band left on the label. Yowza. Yeah, hard to hard to disagree with that. Although there were reissues and comps to come, yeah. Um, and then I found a I found a couple of good spiel's out of this book, the Triple X Fanzine Anthology, nineteen eighty three to nineteen eighty eight. There's actually an interview with Blast from what seems to be right around before this record came out, or before they went in to record it. It's and they're playing they're playing the Rat in Boston. And they're being interviewed then. So I think this is like a tour before they recorded Take the Manic Ride. All right. So here's what, uh, and I'll just read kind of the interview because it's cool how they talk about their sound and the sound that they are evolving into. I thought this made sense for this episode. Triple X fanzine. One thing I've noticed about you guys is that for a band with such a heavy sound, the metal kids aren't hooking in. Bill. That's cool. We really don't want to limit who listens to us. Cliff, I don't really see that as a way we'd progress anyways. With bands that usually do that, it's a very forced progression. We'll see what Blast progresses into, Triple X. How has that progression gone so far? Cliff, to something beyond. It should be very apparent with our next record. I think we'll just be getting heavier and heavier and heavier. Yeah. <laughs> Most definitely, man. Yeah. Right on. Let's get into this record. History Lesson, Part 2. Dude, before we do this record, let me give you some Spaceman on it, too. Hit me. Okay. Here we go. From the SST catalog, Blast, Take the Manic Ride. Whether you are prepared to take the Manic Ride or not, the new Blast LP will grab you by the throat and not let go. Twelve new plutonium-packed songs are included featuring Blast It Back and Start the Machine, music of unrivaled intensity. LP, cassette, and CD. Hmm. All right, so this album was engineered by Dave Levine, better known as Dave Rat, founder of Rat Sound Systems. Rat Sound was established in 1980 by Dave and Brian Benjamin, uh, known for being one of the first sound companies to tour with hardcore bands, namely Fear, Dead Kennedys, and most famously, of course, well, with Black Flag starting in 1985 and for the rest of the band's run, I believe. After that, they toured with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and eventually Pearl Jam, Sonic Youth, Rage Against the Machine, tons more. As I say in the interview, I tend to think of Dave Ratt as more of a live sound engineer, Yeah. Uh, but he's worked on tons of records, starting with this one, actually, in L7, Hungry for Stink, Rage Against the Machines, Evil Empire, Soundgarden's King Animal, tons of Red Hot Chili Peppers stuff. This record was engineered at Music Art Recording Studio. 
sometimes uh, referred to as Mars, in Aptos, California. It was mixed at Phil Newman's Spinhead, mastered not by JG, but by SST production manager, uh, who I'm dying to interview, by the way, Rich Ford. It was recorded in June of 1988 and released in 1989 on LP and cassette. Now, According to Discogs, the CD didn't come out until 91. Yeah. Uh, it's also up on streaming, by the way, so people can listen along. It's actually pretty long for the LP era. It's 51 minutes long. Uh, yeah, there's so many ideas on this record. Yeah. And unless I say otherwise, because there are a few exceptions, all of the music is credited to Mike Nider and all the lyrics to Clifford Dinsmore. Yeah, it's so weird hearing Mike's interview and the explanation for how the sound came about on this record because it's one of those things where I had no idea when I when I picked up this CD way back when, probably the 90s. Uh, I mean, to me, it sounded like it was totally on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. All right, so track one, side one. Somewhere I've found starts with Dave come you know comes rumbling in with that killer finger picking oh yeah the bass intro so intense the way Clifford is delivering that I can't breathe line is just so intense I'm probably going to use that word a lot while we're talking about these tracks intense this yeah. whole album is just impenetrable and over the top like just so many riffs it is when you hear it for the first time and I haven't listened to it for a long time so it was kind of like I heard it for the first time it there is so much intensity and so many ideas it does kind of blend together yeah. you have to listen to it to a few times in order to get kind of the whole arc of the album see that a little bit more clearly at least i did this week yeah for sure um this is blast at the peak of their powers this record for me uh, i love the flanged bass in that extended breakdown in the middle <laughs> and when they come blasting back in with clifford just howling this song has just so much going on. I don't even know how they played this. It's just insane. Of course, every time Mike does that palm-muted chugging thing, I just lose it. Yeah. yeah. I was trying to think, like, what is the band that has had this many ideas in a song that we've covered on the show? Like, Treacherous came up. Yeah. Maybe Swa. You know, there are a few bands like this back then on SST. Yeah, I referenced, <laughs> in my notes here, I referenced Treacherous as well just like right? so many ideas in these songs it's just yeah yeah uh, and the next one falsehood claims i feel so alive in the face of annihilation again they have that thing you you mentioned it that that black flag called the lurch just totally down where they can speed up and slow down in the middle of a song and make it sound deceivingly simple to do mm -hmm. that appreciated riff that mike plays during the chorus and it's it's kind of a turnaround at the end of it is just so cool he does that a lot um, some of this stuff is almost like punk prog. Kind of like free LSD, man. Maybe, yeah. The the liners list Mike and Bill on backing vocals, and I'm guessing they meet at the end with like the whispers. The way it ends with that echoing thing of Clifford going, away. <laughs> Love it. And then they go straight into Overdrive. One of two tracks we've already heard on episode 213, Program Annihilator 2. This is a short one at 1 minute 13 seconds and yeah. just the back and forth way between Mike Mike and Clifford like the way they play off of each other is just very cool. 
Track four, Out of Alignment. This is the other Program Annihilator 2 track. I wandered blind, off the beaten track, down roads of indecision, feeling like the weight of the world would surely break my back. Yeah, I missed when we covered this song before, how there's just such serious ride symbol action in this song. Yeah. Yeah, this is the this is the one that uses the title, the name of the album title in the chorus, Take the Manic Ride. Mm-hmm. Blast can be pretty discordant and atonal at times. This one has some melody. It kind of made me think of Swa, actually. Like, you could hear Merrill Ward singing this song. So I thought of Treacherous and Swa, and you did too, listening yeah. to this record. Yeah. Uh, when Mike hits, a, like, just a single note and with that vibrato, it's just awesome. Electric. Yep. Uh, track five, Off and On slash Start the Machine. This kind of opening part, which is very Melvins-esque, has lyrics written by Mike. Uh, to me, like, Blast really draws that line from damage to bullhead. You know? Ah, interesting. Yeah. The, the connector is some serious Rototom action on this one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, after a minute or so of off and on, Clifford just comes in with that blood-curdling start the machine. Again, what a song. Structurally, it's it it's so unconventional and weird, but it works. Mm-hmm. The part where Clifford's singing Hell is Here in that super low voice made me think of Personality Crisis, too. Oh. The band. <laughs> total, some total Mitch Funk action going on. Baritone vocals. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of was thinking this week, listening to this record and all of the the effects that are on the vocals from time to time, it's kind of like the, they put like the Cenobite filter on his <laughs> vocals now and then. All right. Turn and face the world is the next one. I wonder if Mike's bending the strings, like just by bending his neck. I sure hope he is. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much intensity, right? Yeah. Uh, the way they ratchet up the tension with Bill on the toms and then they just explode. It's just awesome. Again, this is the one where I, I, my notes say, Blast reminds me of Treacherous in the sense that you have no clue where these songs are going and they just overload them with ideas that would never work on paper or if some band that hadn't been playing together forever, like Blast had at this point, they mm-hmm. never would have been able to pull this off. Yeah, and then they're layering in that part that just makes it seem even more sinister. Yeah, that's what I wrote, the creepy crawl midsection. <laughs> with that one, two, Freddy, Freddy's coming for you part, yeah. uh, except it set the set the lie on fire. Really cool touch at the end of this, where he says, "This death trend will never end." Every time I heard that this week, I kept thinking of uh, Portland, Maine's finest hardcore band, Dead Trend. Dead Trend. Yeah. Uh, and then we're flipping it over with, and we're starting with Blast It Back. Some serious chugging on this song, hey? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, the way Clifford is whispering kind of over top of his main vocal track. That's one of the things I was kind of referencing in the, in the interview when I was saying they were, they were doing some experimentation in the studio on this one for sure. Yeah. It's not just unintentional effects. Yeah. The, the double tracking is, uh, very cool. Mike just melting frets on this track too. And and then we go into bones, scraping the strings with a pick kind of behind the nut. Totally cool intro. Uh, Bill's toms are in stereo. Uh, sounds like there's an octavizer on Mike's guitar. And after close to two minutes of 
again, just building tension, they just blast off with Clifford just singing, kill, time. This track is a highlight for me, for sure. Yeah, and then it stops suddenly. Yeah. You re- you're just kind of like, Ugh. Yeah, and then we go into power, eyes. <laughs> <laughs> my, I thought you'd love the tapping on this. Hey? Oh, yeah, that's my first thing I wrote. Mike with a co- cool <laughs> hammer on or finger tapping intro. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. I mean, there's no question he's influenced by Gin, but I have to say he takes it to another level. Yeah. Well, what about the next track? It's a bit Sabbathy, right? Yep. Yeah, I say something about this in the interview. It, it's, you know, hard to n- not see that tritone at the beginning as a deliberate nod to Sabbath. It's a wild song. They just insert these pockets for Clifford to sing over, and, and in between that, it's just ca- chaos. Like, you yeah. can you can just picture them playing these songs in practice while Clifford's sitting in a corner scribbling away trying to find, you know, find out how he's going to sing over top of it, just like treacherous. Like mm-hmm. you hear that stuff and you're like, how did they even figure out where to put the lyrics in these songs? Yeah. Uh, the next one is Abraxas. She's the queen of the underground, shaking it to the heavy sound. They sh- say she came from the fire below, blazing her trail through every show. It's the shortest and, mo- and most straightforward track on the album at one minute, three seconds. Pretty sure that's Abraxas on the album cover. Mm, Okay. Yeah. yeah, well, it's track 11, and they're still totally manic. Um, what about the wailing guitars while Clifford is saying Abraxas, hey? Oh, yeah. Not bad. And then uh, we end the shortest track and go straight into the longest track, Look Inside. It's almost eight minutes long. Uh, this one credits both Clifford and Mike with lyrics. They pull out kind of all the stops on this one. Just twists and turns galore, amazing rift after amazing riff. Uh, they clearly, as Mike mentions, practiced like crazy. The arrangements of these songs are just in so, just so insane. Like I don't even know how you could uh, play this. Uh, all you know, like all of these albums that are just relentless. Like I was th- actually thinking of Rollins' band End of Silence this week, mm. partially because of the length of this album, but part also because you just feel drained by the end of listening to it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, and it ends with a really long song too. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. You know. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's 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 an awesome record. Very well sequenced, I would say. This will be just excellent on a re-release from Southern Lord. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, the Justin Forbes artwork. You've got Abraxas kind of holding up this claw-like finger, beckoning you towards her. But then when you flip the album over. You, you see that she's standing, I assume, on the sun, hence the flames, and she's beckoning the entire planet <laughs> uh, towards her, and she's got a knife behind her back. Yeah. I was looking on Justin's website. He's an amazing painter. Some of it kind of reminds me of Robert Williams, like that low, you know, lowbrow stuff. Mm. There's a portrait he did of Rob Roscoff that's super cool. I was digging around trying to find skateboard graphics that he might have done. He did some stuff for Team Hasoy, like Monty Nolder's 1988 uh, deck on, on Hasoy. Uh, some stuff for SMA, Jim Thibode, uh, the Joker graphic from 89. Probably most famously, he did the Nodus Panther for SMA, which I have a super thrashed copy of nailed up on my garage wall. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've got that classic Alison Braun, uh, a.k.a. Mouse, photos on the inside she photographed blast extensively 
you can see that cool photo of Clifford. Um, you have to look really close to see it, but he's got a take the manic ride tattoo. Yeah. And there's someone, it looks like a, a woman like running on her, on his arm. Hey. Yeah. Well, I think it's a Braxis. Is that right? Yeah. Really? Yeah, I think so. It's a different type of perspective. Yeah. I haven't, I didn't check that out. Good call. Yeah. I haven't picked up Allison's book in the pit yet. Uh, but you know, you can follow her on, on Instagram or, or check out her website, alisonbraun.com. Yeah, that's good. I haven't picked it up yet either, but it's on the to-do list. Yeah. No dead wax on this one, Ryan. No? No. Uh, well, I only have the disc. Well-loved. It's well-loved, my disc. Yeah. Well, <laughs> now you can get the LP next year. Yeah. Well, it'll be hard to say no when that comes out. Yeah. Maybe some bonus material. That'd be cool. Yeah. I'd be interested to see what they do with uh, the graphics and the photos. I sure hope that they really expand on that too. Yeah. Yeah. Some nice liner notes. Yeah. Ballot result? Yeah. Ballot result. All right, Brent. Was it so intense that you couldn't pick some faves? <laughs> well, they're all good songs for sure. What were yours? I want to hear what your favorites were. Uh, I My favorite was probably off and on Start the Machine. Yeah, that was good when I picked that falsehood clause, out of alignment, blast it back, bones, it's time, and look inside. So half the album. Yeah, half the album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should pick, man. I I love uh, episodes like this where you get to just, you know, get so pumped and relive all those amazing times. So you pick. Let's do it's time. Yeah, I like that one. I love the you know that doomy intro. All right. Hey, Ryan, thanks to Mike Nider for being on the show. Yeah, totally. That's a, that's a bucket list one for sure. Yeah. Speaking of bucket list, Ryan, what's next week? Ooh. Next week, Brant, we've got SST 226, the Black Flag, I Can See You EP, and we've got a special guest. You bet. Long overdue. We've got Kira Rossler on the show. Can't wait. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.